0: I love that we sing out of the hymnal because there's some there's some, some deep theology in there, um, but I, I want to talk about this hymn that we just sang uh, for just a second, and by the way, this is part of the sermon, uh, so here we go. I'm, I'm not just just adding extra things in. Um, you can go ahead and flip in your copy of God's Word to 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. I'll go ahead and tell you where you can go ahead and, and start getting there. Uh, But I want to talk for just a minute about the definition of heaven, Uh, because uh, you're singing, you're getting along through this hymn, and uh, you get to verse four, and uh, the words are by a man named William R. Featherston, which is a great name, Uh, and he says, in mansions of glory and endless delight, I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright. What is heaven? Is heaven a location that is absolute or is it relative? Because if you mean heaven is an absolute location, as in it is a place that does not move, I do not agree with this hymn. But if you tell me that heaven is a location that is relative, I do. Because here's the biblical reality. If you're talking about heaven, the location up, wherever up is in the Bible. I mean, it is a spiritual realm. It is not part of this physical realm, though it is every bit as real as the world that you and I inhabit right now. Uh, You do know that when a believer goes on to be with Christ in heaven, that heaven, that location is not where they will stay for eternity. Silence. What's going on? What's pastor about to say? What do you mean we're not going to be in heaven forever? I say that as an absolute location because the true definition of heaven is heaven is wherever Jesus is. Because if I'm up there, but God's not there, that ain't heaven, is it? What makes heaven heaven is... Is that's where God is. That you are with Him. Uh, at one point that, that Paul even says in Scripture. Uh, that I don't know. I'm hard pressed between the two. I don't know what I want to do. I don't know if I want to stay here where you are. Because it would be for your benefit. Or to depart and be with Christ. Which is far better. That being with Christ. Is what makes heaven, heaven. Well you do know that Christ is not going to stay in heaven geographically forever right there's gonna be a day when jesus christ sets his foot back down on this earth on the mount of olives and it's gonna split in two because it just can't handle that god has come back that there is a day coming So, when you sing this hymn and you say, I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright, remember that the next line says, In singing thy praises before thee I'll bow. Heaven is where Jesus is. So, the question is why, as believers, do we have hope living in the world that we have right now? I'm going to read scripture. And then we're going to talk this morning three reasons why we as believers should have hope. So if you'll stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians four thirteen through 18. Uh, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words father we thank you for these words and we thank you that you offer them to us as comfort and encouragement and lord a source of great hope um not uh not a maybe this will happen we hope this will happen kind of hope but as a certain sure hope of the future that keeps us going that we know that you will come back and death does not get the last laugh that you do So we love you, Jesus, and we thank you for being who you are and for everything you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I'll give you a couple of of, uh, ground rules, I guess, before we start dealing with this passage. Uh, First, uh, when I say hope, I alluded to this as I just prayed, but when I say hope, there is the 21st century modern definition of hope, which is, you know... I hope that there will be enough turkey for me at Thanksgiving this week. I hope there probably won't be. um, I hope that we will have good weather tomorrow. I hope that Georgia beats Alabama. (laughs) Um, I hope these are not sureties. Okay, they are things that I want to happen, but I have no guarantee that it's going to happen. Right? The biblical New Testament definition of hope is not that kind of hope. That's not what the authors of Scripture mean when they say hope. What they mean, linguistically, what they would have meant when they said that, was it is something in the future that gives you the gas in your tank to keep going today. That you know something is coming. That it's not here yet. But you know that it's coming in the future. And because you know that it's coming in the future, you can keep putting one foot in front of the other foot today. And you experience hopes like that too, don't you? You do. uh, I I remember I worked at a hardware store when I was growing up, and we used to get closed at 6. And man, it would be Tuesday afternoon in the middle of summer, and it seemed like it was 3 o'clock for 5 hours. Nobody came in. Nobody was doing anything on Tuesday afternoon except the same two or three contractors that would come in a few times a day because they were. But no, what? Nobody else working on their house because they were they were at work somewhere else. So we're just sitting there. But finally, that clock, somebody put some batteries in it, and it hit five o'clock. And we knew we closed at six, and we called it downhill. That if you can just make it to five. You can make it to six. And about that time that hand hit five o'clock, you had hope because you knew six o'clock was coming eventually. Um, And of course, when five o'clock got there, so did all the customers. So you didn't get a chance to look. But you knew that a particular time was coming. It's a certainty. As long as the Lord tarries five o'clock, is going to turn into six o'clock eventually, right? And it's going to do that every day. Well, believers have a sure hope, which is what we're going to talk about today, a certainty in the future that gives us the gas in our tank to keep putting one foot in front of the other. That's what we talk about when we mean hope. Secondly, th- this might be confusing, but I don't look at this passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. This is not a passage about death. This is not. This is about a passage, or this passage is about the opposite of death. That's why it's hope. If this passage were about death, that's not very comforting or very hopeful. But this passage is not about that. It's about the inverse. We've been going through the Apostles' Creed, and the last two that we have to have to get through it. I told you, these last three are actually kind of linked. The forgiveness of sins. We talked about the forgiveness of sins that Jesus Christ being God through His death on the cross he, he has the ability to forgive sins. And once you've come to Jesus Christ in faith and put your trust in Him your sins have been forgiven then you have the sure hope Of the resurrection of the body. That's what we're talking about today. That's what the passage is about. And because we have the sure hope of the resurrection of the body. We can look forward to the life everlasting. That those last three work together. This passage is about the resurrection of the body. And that Paul is dealing with a church in Thessalonica. That uh, he had kind of a, a laundry list of things. That, that had to deal with it. He had to deal with endurance. He had to deal with purity, Lord, that you or, or church, that you would just keep on keeping on, that you would live a brotherly and orderly life, that you should treat each other well. And then also he says, I don't want y'all to be ignorant of something. And that, he doesn't mean that in an insulting way. He says, I want to make sure you are not forgetting something that is central to your faith. It is something that if you let it go, if you miss it, I know this can shock y'all. Get ready for sarcasm. I know this can shock you, but you know Christians can get depressed too. You ever know that? Christians can. We can get down, real down. And Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. When you get to those moments, I don't want you to not remember something that you need to know. So first I want us to see that believers in Christ should view death differently, which is central to this passage, which is not about death. That Paul says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. When he says brethren, who's he talking to? He's talking to us. He's talking to Christians. Very specifically. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. Concerning who? Those who have fallen asleep. That he is referring to believers... that have in common parlance that they've died they've died in christ he says i don't want you to be ignorant brethren concerning them i don't want you to think the wrong thing about them and he says concerning those who have fallen asleep lest you sorrow as others who have no hope so why does paul use the word sleep He uses the word sleep because sleep contains meaning that died does not contain. When I go lay down in my bed at night, I say I'm going to sleep, not I'm going to dead. Why do I say I'm going to sleep? Because the the idea is I'm going to wake up in the morning. I'm going to get up. Well, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. And now he draws a line. He says there are those Christian. Not there are those Christians who, but Christian, you. There are those who have no hope. Who are they? On the one side of the line that has hope, you've got the group that Paul addresses as brethren. These are the ones he does not want to be ignorant. That he does not want to sorrow as who? As the folks on this other side of the line. The folks who have no hope. Now what's the only difference between those who have hope and those who don't? These are the brethren. That's it. These over here have not trusted Christ. Now the rest of this passage is exceedingly hopeful, and it's exceedingly encouraging, and it's exceedingly comforting, particularly in times when you need it. But there's also a very stark distinction and a very clear warning in this passage that on this side of the line where you have never trusted Christ, there is no hope. That it's not very theologically accurate, but there is a classic, uh, I don't know if you can call it poem or if you can call it epic um, but, uh, the, the medieval poet Dante wrote, um, a, a, a whatever it was, it was a piece called the Inferno and, and it's, he starts at the, at, at the bottom of hell and works his way up into the divine comedy. And he looks all the way through the bottom of hell, all the way to the tops of heaven. And he's telling you what he's seeing along the way. And when he describes the doorway to hell, there's a sign above it that says, abandon hope all ye who enter here there's no way out. Once you cross that threshold, that's it. That Paul says on this side of the line, where you have never trusted Christ, if you die in that state, he says there is such a thing as sorrowing like those who have no hope. So let's go ahead and get that out of the way. If you're here today right now and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, I promise you the folks in, here, folks in here who love Jesus would not be upset right now if you interrupted my sermon and said, Pastor, I need you to tell me how to trust Jesus. I will stop right now and, and we will lead you to Christ right now and then we'll pick right up off and you can stand on this side of the line. I'll be fine with that. Okay? But that needs to be said at the outset that there is this side of the line. But for those over here who are brethren, to not understand the difference between the death of a believer and the death of an unbeliever is to put yourself in a situation where you expose yourself to unnecessary sorrow. That is not to say that that a believer dying is not sorrowful. Uh, Look at John 11 verses 33 through 36. It's on your handout. Uh, This is uh, uh, when Lazarus had passed away. Um, Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Famous verse because of it being short. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how they loved him. Y'all, Jesus, that Set of words that says he groaned in his spirit and he was troubled. That's not heaving sobs of sadness. It's anger. Why is Jesus angry? Why is Jesus frustrated? Why is Jesus upset? Y'all, because death is bad. Death is worth mourning over and then he weeps it's worth being sorrowful over but for a believer now Jesus's sorrow though was very different from everybody else's why was Jesus's sorrow different if you go back earlier in that chapter chapter and you look at Lazarus's sisters they keep saying if you had been here he wouldn't have died if you had been here he wouldn't have died Why weren't you here? And Jesus is upset. He's sorrowful because his friend has died, but his sorrow is very different. Why? Because Jesus knows what happens at the end of chapter 11. The rest of the folks don't yet. Jesus knew at the end of the day, Lazarus was going to be walking around too. They didn't. By not knowing and recognizing that the death of a believer is different then the death of an unbeliever, you expose yourself to unnecessary sorrow. There is a level of sorrow that is appropriate, but you also have cause for hope and joy. Why? Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and by the way, I do. I believe that Jesus died and rose again. That That's in the creed too, isn't it? That we believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and the third day rose from the dead. That if we believe that, then, even so, God will bring with Him, when He returns, those who sleep in Jesus. Jesus. See, believers have a hope that not everybody else has. That our life, our existence, our hope is tied up in Jesus. And if Jesus has beat death, then he will beat death for us. And if Jesus is coming back, we will come back with him. And if Jesus rises and he gets his glorified body never to die again, then we will get a glorified body never to die again. That if a believer is wrapped up in Jesus, which is the definition of being a believer... Then any benefit that Jesus gets of the resurrection, we get it too. We get it too, and it's a guarantee. <clears throat> but if you forget that, you stop living in John eleven. You stop living in John four, and uh, um, you stop living in First Thessalonians four, and you start living in Ecclesiastes. Because if you forget this, if you're ignorant, the way Paul said. Look at Ecclesiastes. Now, y'all listen. If you want to get cheered up, there are two books you don't read. You don't read Lamentations because it's literally Lamentations. Okay? So if you're, if you're sad and you want to get cheered up, don't read that. Uh, and if you're sad and you want to get cheered up, don't read Ecclesiastes. Because for the first, you know, eight, nine chapters of Ecclesiastes, it sounds like the guy writing it just says, Eh, it doesn't matter. What? Anything. That's a pretty good summary of the first nine chapters of Ecclesiastes. He gets the, it, because he's approaching the first nine chapters, he's almost approaching it as though God is not a factor. He's saying, I tried to do everything in the world I could and immerse myself in everything in the world I could. And I got to the end of it and realized that it doesn't matter how much I have, how much I don't have. It mu- doesn't matter the experiences I have, the experiences I don't have. It doesn't matter where I go or where I doesn't go. None of it makes a difference. That at the end of my life, I'm still going to, chapter 9, verse 2, all things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who doesn't sacrifice. As the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath is he who fears an oath. What's he talking about? Death. Good people die, bad people die. Rich people die, poor people die. Kind people die, mean people die. And the author of Ecclesiastes is saying from an earthly perspective, it looks like it doesn't matter what kind of life you live. You all end up the same. And if you forget that the death of a believer is different, then it's easy to think, well, what difference does it make? It makes a huge difference. The perception that there is no difference is false. There is a massive difference between believers and unbelievers. Though all of our bodies may fall apart in relatively the same ways, spiritually there is a gulf of unpassable distance between the abode of believers and unbelievers when we die. The skeptic believes that the physical world is all that there is. They do not believe in a soul. They do not believe in eternity. There is just this brief, whatever it is we call life, do what you can while you can, but in the end, everything you did eventually doesn't matter. That's a sad existence, y'all. That's a real sad existence. But for a believer, we know, I'm not even just going to say we believe, okay? We know That I'm sorry, this body is not all of me that there is. There's a physical part of me, but there's also a spiritual part of me. And when this body fails, the spiritual part of me will live on. The question is, where? And your answer to that question, my answer to that question, all depend on what do you do with Jesus Christ? What do you do? Do you confess your sin and believe in that what He did on the cross for you was enough? Do you believe that God raised Him from the dead? Have you called on Him to forgive you? Have you, have you submitted to Him as your Savior and Lord? If you have, then you have the sure hope of being in His presence immediately and, and, and getting a glorified resurrected body eventually. If you don't, then you have the guarantee to not receive either of those benefits. that the death of a believer, believers in Christ should view death differently. Do not ever forget that. That's why Paul started by saying, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to forget this. That you should always think that. You should always remember that. Second, believers in Christ will rise to new life at Jesus' call. Look at verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet them in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So 2 Timothy 2.11 says this. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. Romans 6, 8. See if this sounds familiar. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Him. There is significant thought amongst scholars of Scripture that if you actually... how many. How many of y'all were reading Second Timothy out of your Bible instead of off of the handout? If you look at it in your Bible, you can almost not even look at your verse numbers. Like if you pull your face back from your page, you can almost identify verses 11 through 13 just by how it's set on the page, can't you? Have you noticed you read down and you got pretty justified text? Until you hit verse eleven, and then it almost looks like it's it's jagged and it's not quite the same. You know why that is? That's probably because that was a hymn in the early church. You're probably looking at a song that they would sing, or you're probably, or, or you might be looking at something similar to this Apostles' Creed. Have you noticed how similar 2 Timothy 2.11 and Romans 6.8 sound? If we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. Romans 6.8, if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with Him. Have you noticed how similar that sounds? This is like when you're having a conversation with somebody and you have a realization and you say, I once was blind, but now I see. That you pulled that from a psalm to make a point. That's exactly what Paul is doing in those two passages. That the early church wrote into their music, wrote into their worship, wrote into their, their, their creedal recitations, if we die with them, we live with him. And by the way, the martyrs found out that the reverse is also true. If they live with him. a lot of them died with him. But when Christians talk about the the resurrection and the skeptic says, Well, I'm glad that makes you feel better, but there's no such thing as a resurrection, what's their reasoning? Well, they believe that there's no such thing as a resurrection because they believe that there's no reliable record of the dead ever rising. They doubt the Bible, they doubt what it says. And this logic even exists in Scripture. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 12, if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Listen to me, church. Christianity, it's not a gamble, but it is a bet. And let me tell you what I mean, because we as Baptists, we don't, we don't gamble, right? You know that, that, That's kind of a classic Baptist thing. Christianity, forgive the poker analogy. Yes, I'm going to make a poker analogy from the pulpit. I'm going to do it. Okay, y'all ready? Christianity takes all its chips and it shoves it into the middle of the table against anybody who doubts it. and says, I'm putting everything i got on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Y'all listen, if somebody ever definitively finds the body of Jesus Christ and can prove that that is Jesus Christ, never come back in this building again. Never read your New Testament again. Because Christianity's false. Right? But because if Jesus is dead, then everything he said is a lie. Everything the apostle said is a lie. But here's the kicker. He's not dead. He's not. And the skeptic says, well, prove it. Here's my question to the skeptic. What amount of proof is going to be enough? How much do you want? Do you mean to tell me Everybody saw Jesus die. Okay? He was out there, public. It was a public execution. Everybody saw him die. The Romans stationed a guard outside of his tomb. And when you read that, when you read, if you go back and you read the account of the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, and you read a guard, don't think they took one guy with a spear and had him standing outside. A guard was almost 20 people. 20 professional Roman soldiers. Members of the most powerful military unit in the history of humanity until about 200 years ago. There was a guard of them standing out there. And you mean to tell me that an entire government and an entire religious establishment that had a vested interest in proving that Jesus Christ had never risen, all they had to do was produce the body. Interesting how that never happened, isn't it? It's really interesting how in the exact city where Jesus was crucified, a religion based on the resurrection of Christ blew up in that same city amongst all the people who saw Him crucified. That's interesting, isn't it? It's really interesting how hundreds of people who lived contemporary to Jesus were willing to be fed to lions and be willing to be forced to drink poison and be willing to be exiled and be willing to have all kinds of things happen to them because they would rather have that happen to them than deny that Jesus rose from the dead. That's really interesting that that happened, isn't it? That there exists more historical evidence for the existence and life of Jesus Christ of Nazareth than we have for the evidence of Julius Caesar living. But the skeptics will believe in Julius Caesar but will not even believe that Christ walked the earth, some of them. My question is not whether or not it's believable but whether or not you're willing to believe it. There is ample evidence for anybody, if any of y'all say, well, I would like to see some of this evidence, call me and if it's not more than like three of y'all, I'll buy you a book. If it is more than three of y'all, then I'll find a way to buy books in bulk. (laughs) But y'all, there's plenty of evidence that I can't spend the rest of my time in this sermon giving y'all. But the fact of the matter is, it is believable, rational, and even historically likely. Even from a non-Christian perspective. If you examine the evidence with an open mind that Jesus Christ of Nazareth walked the earth, lived, died under Pontius Pilate, was buried in a defined place, and rose three days later. If you approach it with an open mind, you will come away believing that. I promise. Unless you write off from the beginning that you refuse to. And for Christians... We look at the death of Jesus Christ and say, I identify with Christ, therefore I die with him. But Jesus Christ did not stay dead. If I died with him, I shall also live with him. That everything we've got, every ounce of hope, every ounce of joy, every ounce of encouragement, every ounce of comfort that we get from being Christians is tied up and lumped in with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm about halfway serious about my faith. Well, no. It's either the most important thing in the world or not important at all. It can't be anywhere in the middle. So Jesus Christ, having been raised from the dead, that is the source of our hope for our resurrection. Listen to what Paul says. That we who are alive and remain, y'all, we don't get to go first. It's the ones who've already died that they get to go first. They get the new body first, I guess, because they've been long enough without one. Then after they get their new body, we get ours. And this isn't some quiet thing that happens in the middle of the night. There's a celebration that there are trumpeters. There are archangels shouting. And the climax of the whole thing is Jesus stepping out of heaven himself. And if you go back to John 11, I heard the old-timey preacher say the reason Jesus had to say Lazarus come forth is if he hadn't called Lazarus by name, everybody would have come out. When Jesus talks to his people, whether they're alive, whether they're in the grave, whether they've been cremated, whether they've been scattered over the Grand Canyon as ashes, it doesn't matter. When Jesus Christ speaks and says, rise, that's what's going to happen. And the great throng of all those from all ages who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they will set their foot back on this earth with him.. John 14:3, "And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also." And that's the definition of heaven. That where I am, you may be also. You ever just sat down and thought, man, I could just about deal with anything if Jesus was sitting on this bench next to me. There's going to come a day when you'll never leave his presence. So... Believers in Christ should view death differently than non-believers. Believers Believers in Christ will rise to new life at Jesus' call. And then finally, believers in Christ should have comfort in the face of death. Look at the second half of 17, verse 18. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Uh, I was reading a commentary that I thought made a very good point on this passage. That it's really easy to get into deep, intricate theology in passages like this. I mean, it really is. You're dealing with the resurrection, you're dealing with glorified bodies, you're dealing with the return of Christ, you're dealing with, uh, you know, the way skeptics view death versus the way believers view death. There's a lot of theology in there, but Paul tells you in verse 18 what the point, excuse me, of this passage actually is, and what is it? Comfort one another. That's the point of this passage. It's, It's here for our comfort. That we should have comfort in the face of death. That doesn't mean that we view death and it doesn't hurt us. That we don't grieve, that we don't mourn, but we ought to take comfort from the fact that there is a resurrection coming. You know, if you've ever had to deal up close and personal with death, the last thing you want is a theology lesson in that moment, isn't it? You don't want that. You want somebody to come up and say, Comfort me. Help me through this. Help me deal. And that's exactly what this passage is that God says, I know you grieve. Let me give you comfort. Let me give you hope. Let me tell you why you can keep going. The good news here is that death pales in comparison to the power of Jesus, it's not even a fair fight. We talked talking in the Sunday school this morning, and Anthony said if you put two boxes in a ring, they both play by the same rules. A boxer doesn't expect to get poked in the eyes. He doesn't expect to get his foot stomped on. That's not a fair fight. Well, if you put Jesus in the ring with death, that's not a fair fight either. But Jesus ain't got to poke any eyes or stomp any toes. He's just gonna knock him smooth out. It's not even a competition that death is some of our greatest fears unless you read the stats there are some people who are more afraid of public speaking than death but that, that, that's an unbelievable truth by the way that there are people in the world who are more afraid of speaking in public than they are of dying um, but we we get scared of death we're afraid of it death is afraid of jesus The most comforting thing a Christian can know is that no matter what happens on this earth, we end up with Jesus. I feel like it was, I think it was actually Martin Luther who said this. That he said, let them, you know, he was talking about, you know, fear of execution at the hands of the Roman Catholic Church. And if it wasn't Martin Luther, it was William Tyndale But William Tyndale's burned at the stake. Martin Luther said, go ahead, take my head. I serve a God who will give me another. Y'all, the worst thing that can happen to a believer is that we get sent to be with Jesus. That's the absolute worst thing that can happen. And that ain't bad. And that's not to say we don't look forward to... This all is pointing toward being with Jesus. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. We will meet Him in the air. Now don't get me wrong. This passage does say you get to be reunited with your loved ones in Christ. You do. But what's the main draw for being reunited with your loved ones? Why are you excited to be reunited with them? Because they're with Christ. All of you get to be with Jesus together. So what do we do? What's the application for this passage? Do what Paul said to do and comfort one another with this. That it's a decisively Christian thing to do. To say, hey, remember what God's word says about those who have fallen asleep in Christ. Remember what hope we have that is coming. And let me tell you all something else to do. This is something that was drilled into my head in seminary as a pastor. And it is extremely true. Don't try and do something the Bible doesn't allow you to do. What do I mean when I say that? Don't go to somebody and tell them, well, everything happens for a reason, that some good's going to come out of this. Y'all, listen, you don't know that. Scripture doesn't give you the ability to say that. But all things work together. You know, God works all things together for good for those who love Him. Yes. But there is no guarantee that that good happens this side of glory. What comfort can you give somebody when a drunk driver killed their child? What greater good can you point to and tell them came from that? You can't. Why am I bringing that up? The Bible doesn't say comfort them. Comfort one another with the words, there's a greater good coming from this. Please don't say God needed another angel. The Bible doesn't say humans become angels anyway. Don't do what the Bible doesn't allow you to do. Do what the Bible tells you to do. Which is comfort one another with the fact that Jesus is coming back and will defeat death once and for all. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ will rise first. And afterward we who are alive and remain will meet them together with the air. And thus we will be with the Lord forever. That's how you comfort someone. When it hurts, don't try and explain something that you can't explain. Because we might not ever know. But what you can say is, the one thing I do know is this, that God is good, Christ is on the throne, and that there is coming a day of resurrection when death will be defeated. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You should carry around hope. You should wear your you ever heard somebody say they wear their heart on their sleeve? You should wear your hope on your sleeve. We live in a messed up, jacked up world that's tore up from the floor up, don't we? Turn on your TV, turn on your radio, read your newspaper, go out, do whatever you want to do, that, man, it seems, there is always, you can find something to be down about, can't you? You wake up, you're having a good day, and you turn on the TV, and it's done. There's something that happened. there's another mass shooting, or, you know, every politician hates every other politician because nobody knows what they're doing, and it's all everybody's fault, and, My Lord, if you really want to show a Christian witness, walk around with some hope. Walk around with some joy. Walk around with some peace. Walk around offering comfort in Christ. And when somebody says, I don't understand, how can you you feel the way you feel when everything around you is happening? I can say, well, let me explain to you why I have hope in Christ. Always be ready to give that reason. Then John 14, 27, 28. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. That the world doesn't have that kind of peace that Jesus offers. Why? Because they didn't even believe that he came the first time. Most of them. Much less that he's coming back the second time. But we as Christians don't just believe. We know. We know. That Jesus Christ. God's only son. Was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified dead and buried. On the third day he rose from the dead. And ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. We know this. And that is why we have hope. So if you are here today and you say, well, I, I don't know what side of that line I'm on. Am I on the hope side of the line or am I on the no hope side of the line? Well, what have you done with Jesus? Have you trusted Jesus? Have you given your life to Christ? Have you submitted to him as your Savior and Lord and asked him to forgive you of your sins? If you have, you're on the hope side of the line. If you have not, I've got to have a talk to you. I want you to come know Jesus Christ. And Miss Sandy and Miss Joyce are going to come lead us in a couple verses of an invitation hymn. And here's an, oppor- here's an opportunity, not the opportunity for you. At least from my perspective, it's not the opportunity. I don't know if you'll ever get another one after this, so it might be the opportunity for you. But if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, you've got a few different ways you can respond. You can come down this aisle and you can say, Pastor, I need to talk to you. You can fill out the guest card on the side of your bulletin and put it in the offering plate when it comes by we will follow up with you. Or you can catch me at the back door back there and say, Pastor, I I, I didn't respond one of the other two ways and I, I need to talk to you before I leave. Don't, you, you are not an inconvenience. You are not delaying me. That's what I'm here for. So I'm going to pray and if you need to come, you come. And all of you who already know Jesus, we believe prayer is, is, is a big deal and it works, right? Right. Okay. Well, then you need to be praying for the folks in here who don't know Jesus during this entire invitation. And if you can't sing and pray at the same time because you need to have one thing going on in your mind at a time, I'd rather you pray than sing. But if you can do both, do that because I like having singing. It's good. But I'm going to pray. If you need to come, you come. Father, thank you for today. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we can have because Jesus is your life. We thank you that you're alive. Oh Lord, we thank you that you offer salvation to any and all who would call on you. That your word says if anyone uh, can, uh, believes, confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, believes in their heart that God has raised them from the dead, they will be saved. Lord, I pray that there will be somebody here today who confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart and therefore will be saved. And I'm just going to leave it at that, Lord, and trust your Holy Spirit to do the rest. It's In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Number 307, please stand.